Hello, everyone. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, a weekly talk radio show for movie and television lovers. I am your host, Sean Dunham. And as always, I am joined by the enigmatic Sonia Stanger. Hello. Hello. Um, plus, this week, we're pleased to welcome back our fifth Beatle, James Brotheridge. Welcome, James. You're really pressing me here. I can't remember who the canonical fifth Beatles are. There's somebody who was in like the Let It Be state <laughs> sessions, but I don't know if I could race in that level. I think roll the roll the tape. Isn't there like a 12 hour documentary or whatever? Yeah. We could check. Yeah, yeah. We could look into this if we wanted to. Um, so last week we did an episode where we each chose a film from a country represented at Mosaic. And we had such a great time that we just said, you know what? Roll it again. Let's just do the exact same thing. Because there's more There's more foreign films. There's more countries. Mm-hmm. Why not? So, um, so with that, I think we should start. Uh, why don't we start? We were already talking about it, about it a bit. Why don't we start with yours, James? Sure. So, yeah, when we're talking about. Films that come from countries covered by Mosaic Regina's Cultural Festival. Um, One that came to mind for me because it's in the most recent Sight and Sound poll and it's part of uh, the World Cinema Project and all that kind of stuff is Tuki Buki, which is a film from Senegal. Um, And yeah, it's interesting because over at Mosaic, they don't necessarily have a Senegalese pavilion but they do have an african pavilion Mm -hmm. uh and (laughs) yes they do it does cover a wide range doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know any other continents that necessarily have their own pavilion just you know covering (laughs) the whole thing but it makes sense for tukibuki to be a selection for this because tukibuki um also has a bit of a reputation as a film that's seen as exemplary from Africa, but also a bit of an exception from my understanding from a lot of other African films, because it is a movie where it pulls from French new wave influences and other influences around the time that it was released back in 1973. That kind of makes it a little different from maybe more naturalistic, more kind of common tone films uh, that were happening in Africa at the time. Uh, and so, yeah, Tukibuki starts out uh, in Senegal, and we are introduced pretty quickly to a herd of ox that are being led, and they are mm. being led to the slaughter. And this is a good point for me to apologize to my hosts. I didn't realize <laughs> I would be dropping that off on you so so quickly. And uh, My first note is, I curse you, James Brodsbridge. <laughs> Yeah, when, I was when like, we well, entered, <laughs> we know that he hasn't seen this before. He would have warned us when, when we entered. When we entered the red room and the blood started flowing, I was like, "Oh my Jesus, here we go." <laughs> Do you two have any qualms with animals being harmed on film, or even animals being represented <laughs> as being harmed on film? I would guess yes. Our lawyers would advise us to not say anything. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. I, I'm, I'm in favor of it. I love it. I think in my mind, I was like, don't worry. This is movie magic. I'll bet it's, I'll bet it's uh, a few ketchup packets under the, under the clothes or something. Some CGI. Yeah. I think my big consolation was that 
it really seemed like they were filming something for real. And I imagine these animals were actually going to be consumed. It wasn't just mm -hmm. strictly animals being <laughs> slaughtered for the sake of, uh, of a small $30,000 budget film. Oh, yeah. I believe those men were actually working their, their daily job. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, okay, bring in a camera if you want, freak. Yeah. Um, and it's already one of the kind of interesting juxtapositions that Tukibuki has where there are this herd of ox going through a field in the same way that I might expect has been happening in Senegal for some time. And then they get herded into this dark room where they're slipping on the blood of other ox. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but in a much more modern environment. And part of what this movie is doing is kind of ping-ponging back and forth. There are people who are living a version of what you might have imagined, you know, their previous generation would have been living for their lives. And then there are people who are living a version of like a Western modernity or, you know, are actually kind of moving towards that. Uh, and that's where our two heroes, as much as their heroes come in, um, Mori and Anta, who are two young people who at least nominally are, are lovers. Uh, they they have sex, but I don't know how much love there is there. Yeah. Uh, and they're trying to get out of Senegal uh, and move on to pr uh, France and Paris. Um, did you feel much love between the two yeah, of them? Yeah, if... The Paris theme song, Paris, Paris, was great. I love Paris. I love Paris popping up like that. And I think that was Josephine um, Baker, wasn't it? Her voice? I'm not sure. I didn't I think, check oh. the credits, honestly. I think so. I just, I remember seeing something that said, like, with music from, and she was um. one of them. And I was like, I think this is her voice. So I could be wrong, but I think it's her. Anyway, sorry, keep going, John. Um, well, I just, the so yeah, we meet Anta. And she is over traditions. She is, her mom is trading tomatoes, or not even, she's giving her friend tomatoes because she can't pay. And Anta is furious and takes the tomatoes back. And is like, how about you pay us first? Yeah, this is capitalism, she came out, mom. She, this is capitalism, baby. <laughs> and then on the other side, you got Maury, who is dressed almost like a Senegalese version of a Western cowboy. He's got the boots. Mm. Yeah. He has his motorcycle with the ox skull and horns on the front. And he's roaming around like that, um, even without the respect that a cowboy might get <laughs> as he's harassed by people and no one seems to take him seriously except for Anto to, to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's your question is interesting, James, because there there is a weird vibe between them, to put it as eloquently as possible. Um, but there the is a question of are they lovers or not? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Um, like, is there real love there? Uh, because there's this particular moment where Anta goes to find Maury, and this older lady in a field mm. tells her she, that Maury has, has jumped off a cliff and then laughs maniacally for a very long time. Um, <laughs> yes. And it turns out she was, she was just yanking her chain. 
for some reason, as many people do to our, our protagonist throughout the film. Um, but Anta seems genuinely distressed at that moment. So, yeah, I don't know if they're like, I don't know if it's love, but there's something powerful and complicated going on between those two. Okay, was it just me or at that moment when I thought Maury was dead at that moment? And then I thought that Anta had sex with the bike. I absolutely did as well. And I was like, wait, (laughs) I was like, oh, oh, never mind. He's there. You know, like the the tide cresting over the uh, over the beach. I was like, oh, this is this is sex. Yeah, well, but at first I thought she was crying because she, like, goes over to his bike and kind of, like, throws herself down. And at first I thought she was crying. Um, and then I was like, oh, I, oh, that's not crying. Those are different kind of noises. And so, yeah, then I thought it was a, you know, self-pleasure moment. And then I realized, in fact, Maury w- was not dead at all. Yeah. The old in Sean's mind, it could us. have been, like, a T10 moment. There might be a hybrid <laughs> yeah, happening. Yeah, it was very that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well... Um, and yeah, Maury's aunt, that's who that woman is. Oh, okay. She's, she, right? I think so. Because she has that moment and then she has the moment when they come back and they're rich, spoiler alert. And then she's trying, she's like, I always knew you had it in you. Love you. I, I think it was his aunt. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I agree. I agree that that is his aunt. Um. <laughs> That's our film analysis, folks. I'm just trying to put some. No, I appreciate know, that. I, I clearly missed it. So it is a movie where not everything is kind of linear, and not everything is literal. And that moment yeah. that you're just talking about, where they've returned, and it's after after Anta and Mori have kind of found the means to uh, to potentially escape Senegal. Uh, by robbing a, a gay man who's very interested in Maury and has mm-hmm. a wardrobe that miraculously will fit both Anta yeah, and Maury. Great. <laughs> Despite both of them being like string beans. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, they. it's, it's almost like a... I almost want to say a fantasy sequence, but in that kind of new wave tradition... Um, it's not quite fantasy. It's just like an expression of something that, you know, they're thinking or something that they're, they're hoping for the future or, or something like that. You know, they kind of like towards the end of the movie, they're getting caught up in possible futures. Uh, and eventually, you know, either they're going to be held back or they're going to be able to continue because they, you know, aren't being led like ox anymore or what have you. Mm-hmm. It did feel like a dream sequence. When it was just like they finally had a plan to make money, and then it went impeccably well. It happened like better than they could have imagined. Because I kept expecting something to like go wrong with their plan, and it not didn't really happen. And they have like a series of plans too. Like they have like the yeah. uh, the shell game one, and it's the one scene in the movie where everyone isn't mad at the person running the shell game. They're mad at the person who's trying to get one over on that huckster. And then there's the scene where they try to steal from the wrestling competition. Um, they try to steal the funds for the Charles de Gaulle uh, memorial statue or whatever. And then finally, they almost accidentally just come across a wad of money in a purse somewhere. 
Yeah. And then, at the, I, but I think at the end, what we're supposed to sort of think is that Maury doesn't get on the boat because he, because the the rich guy that they stole from reported the crime, right? And he kind of gets caught. Yeah, I don't think so. Did he? I thought he. I, I th- um, I'm not sure why. I thought he was. Because he, I don't know. So the. I didn't think that had happened. Like, I think my read was the, you know, our uh, rich gay benefactor reported it to the police and invited the inspector over for whiskey sometime. Right. As a secondary uh, thing to his conversation. And the inspector also shares the director's uh, last name, Mbedi, as well. Uh, So I don't know if that's just self-referentiality or something, but I don't know. And then when they're getting on the boat, uh, Maury hears himself, hears the PA system calling him. Oh, yes, yes, yes. At that point, I think like you're supposed to believe that the two cars that have been trailing them are the police because of those two cars like in perfect lockstep motion Mm -hmm. that have been following them that whole way and that they are on Maury's tail. And... To me, it doesn't really seem like there's anything that would stop Mori from just getting on anyhow. And it yeah. seems like they could just kind of disappear into a crowd if they wanted to. But it does feel like the opening images of the herd of ox all kind of being led together without any resistance and without knowing exactly where they're going. And coming back to those images of the ox and the goat and all the animals that get slaughtered, it feels like they're drawing some kind of comparison mm-hmm. between, you know, the people and the animals and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like Maury, unfortunate for him, uh, might be a lot closer to the animals that can't really escape their fate in the end, despite their best efforts. Yeah, that was my read as well. Um, which I think is interesting that Anta gets away and he doesn't, at least in my reading. And that, like, for me, it's tricky that, like, France is the escape, right? The the colonial land is what they're escaping to, even though that's also kind of what they're escaping from, is, like, the impact of colonialism on their home. So... Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything really deep to say about that, but I just was like, I don't, well, I'm curious what the filmmaker was saying. Because there is a character earlier that is like, someone else goes to France, and they're like, they never come back the same, they always change. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and the film also gives voice to ideas about African art and French art from the perspective of these two awful, obnoxious French characters who have the worst conversation in the world about, you know, what do you even do with money in Senegal? There's nothing to spend it on. All African art is just masks and it's all derivative. Um, And it's interesting to hear that voiced in a movie without a clear kind of counterpoint other than the movie itself. Yeah. Um, And it's a movie that's coming from Africa, but is definitely influenced by a kind of series of French films that 
led up and were a big part of the the new wave at the time or at the time 20 years before but after that point as well mm-hmm. so it's a movie that is kind of wrestling with those things and trying to find a, a new form without necessarily rejecting everything that uh france and, and french artists brought along with them mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a really good way to put it all right. Well, that was Tukipugi. Um <laughs> Great title, by the way. Great I know. Title. I was like, <laughs> I kept singing it in a different, uh, in different lyrics. <laughs> Tukipugi. Okay. Um, but and then our next film, Sonny Stanger. Mm-hmm. What did you pick? Um. Well, I just chose a little lighthearted romp uh, from <laughs> Ukraine, uh, from 1965, called "Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors." Uh, by iconic Ukrainian director Sergei Parajanov. Parajanov. I'm like, I am of Ukrainian descent. I should know how to say it, but I don't. Um, how does one describe this film, guys? Uh, it is a like surreal, kind of mythical, magical, realist folk tale. Um, yeah. About these two young star-crossed Hutzel uh, lovers in the Carpathian Mountains, um, who whose families loathe each other uh, because her father, early in the film, uh, murders his father, um, and they kind of have this beautiful, like childhood romance where they kind of escape their village and go out into the woods and sing and. I don't know, it's very lighthearted and carefree, and then they intend to be married, um, and then very sadly, he kind of goes away to, like, prepare for their marriage and comes back, and she has drowned. Um, And then the rest of the entire film is just sort of his very sad life following the loss of Marichka. Um, And, yeah, it's... It's like... Um, very visually stunning and like I would say like almost like a visual feast at times where it's just like so much to look at and it's almost like these ethnographic shots of like Hutzel traditions and uh, like people chanting and singing and um, honestly narratively it's it's incomprehensible a lot of the time or there's no just like straightforward linear narrative it it was very like poetic it Mm -hmm. was like like a poem like it wasn't a straight up uh you know narrative like that yeah it was just kind of in images and sounds interspersing a life but it was really great i love this film yeah. Yeah. Like, the the wardrobe, very mm. incredible. <laughs> the wardrobe's incredible. Like the, and how do you say this? Pe- these people again, Sonia, the Hutzel. Uh, the Hutzel, Hutzel. Okay. Yeah. Their their wardrobe, their buildings, they they all have just so much ornament, and there's so much detail to them. It's just very interesting to see. And it's a culture that is so far outside of mine and captured so vividly that, you know, it's really compelling on screen. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Jen. <laughs> I was just going to say, giving a plot description of Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors can just sound like a litany of miseries. And it just yeah. sounds like mm-hmm. Angela's Ashes or something, where it's, you know, a bunch of young people being miserable until they die or escape or something like that. Yeah. And even the part where you're saying, oh, they're young and they meet and they fall in love. It's like, well, they keep meeting at funerals because people keep getting trees falling on them or they die in some way or another. But it doesn't feel miserable to me, at least, because it is just such an adventurous and really amazing movie. Um, Would you two uh, be cool if I read a couple descriptions that I gathered from other sources on uh, Shadows of Forgotten. Yeah? Yes, please do. I was planning on doing this as well, so I'd love to hear what you have. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I did hear one writer describe it as rife with the images and symbols of a heterodoxical, big word, realm straddling the worlds of the body and the spirit of the pagan and the Christian. And that Mm. is part of what was so interesting about the Hutzel people, as well as the movie itself, because it does occupy a space where Christianity exists. It also occupies a space where there are beliefs outside of Christianity that are seeping in and are still being practiced. And it's not treated in such a way where it underlines one or the other. It's treated in a way where we're in this understanding with all the characters in the film. Yeah. Yeah. The sorcerer. Yeah, yeah. The like <laughs> the the kind of like witchcraft pieces, the the pagan pieces were so interesting and yeah, the way especially they would kind of weave directly from Christian prayer into like doing sorcery as they called it. Yeah. Um was very striking to me. Because, you know, often we see those things as completely in opposition with each other. And so it's always interesting when you get a viewpoint where they're coexisting. It just makes it feel like a more living thing. Because Mm -hmm. when you're sometimes looking at progressions of religions or religious belief, and you see that somebody moves from one belief to Christianity or what have you, it's easier to kind of see like, dark lines kind of dividing everything having it be this fungible thing where it's it's makes it a more living film and a more alive world where there is just some gray area in there uh, Mm -hmm. where these things happen Mm -hmm. and it is definitely a very alive film um like the there are a lot of interesting camera movements and like uh, specific camera techniques, different lenses that he used. Um, yeah. He, he ta- apparently the yeah. director um, Parajanov talked about a dramaturgy of color, um, which I was like, that's yeah, that's what he's doing. Like, yeah, just so strikingly beautiful. And it's really interesting because some of these shots just like fly by and there's, you're just getting like inundated with all of these beautiful images. And like, I think it at first I was almost like taking it for granted. Like it was just like, it just like hits you and you're 
you're just along for the ride. And as it kind of sunk in, I was like, these, I think these are some of the most beautiful shots I've seen in film. Like, like yeah. just so when you said like along for the ride, that is kind of, it felt like a lot of the cam work felt like you were like a child, like running around, like watching things mm-hmm. like be, not being caught, but just kind of surreptitiously looking. And yeah, one of the shot I shot that I loved was when he is like re-roofing his 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 house and his mom is like giving him fresh wood. And so then there's like skitter scatter, like fresh wood on their old roof. And it was like just so beautiful. And it was just very quick and like a very quick shot. But I that's something that I've been thinking about when I think of this film for some reason, too. Well, in that shot, too, there's the whole sequence where he comes down the ladder and the camera just tracks in such an interesting way where it sticks with him for a moment and then it kind of holds in place until we see that his mother's carrying the other end of the ladder and then they go around the corner and it's just very interestingly composed and you're always very (laughs) engaged in what's happening in there. The other amazing shot that I wrote down was when the ghost of Marichka reaches through space and time to like touch him i was like how did you do this she just reaches for so long mm. through the trees yeah like at the end that was when he dies. scary but scary and beautiful yeah mm-hmm. when he spoiler dies yeah spoiler alert sorry it's to, sad. yeah sorry to Ivan. when his before palanya uh, foiled him <laughs> Polanyi innocent. She was trying to make a life for herself and she got stuck with Ivan, you know? Yeah. You see it's, a sweet it's guy. It's when you get, get together with someone and they're not over their ex. Yeah. And, yeah. And how can you live up to a woman that died saving a sheep? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'll never, you'll never. The metaphor is strong for sure. Yeah. And a connection point with Tukibuki, another movie with animals in peril in some way. Yeah. Except in this one, we didn't see the animal uh, meet its maker in such a way. Yeah, Tukibuki is pretty singular in that way. In that, you know, in uh, Shadows of Our Ancestors, of Forgotten Ancestors, it's like, ah, you know, that goat falls or that lamb falls. Like, I don't know exactly what happens to it. In Tukibuki, it's very clear. It's There's like, no... oh, we're a snuff film. <laughs> we're a snuff film for animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so do know that if you're going to check that one out. But there yeah. are, I think, some interesting parallels between the two in the in terms of some of the, like, um, visual metaphor and the kind of, like, speedy cutting between shots. Like, I think on, on the face of it, you wouldn't say that these two films had a lot of similarities, but it was interesting watching them in the same week. And... Then now we'll see if our third film has the same connections to our first two. So we'd like to take a little break, but first but we'll be right back with Spoiler Alert on 91.3 FM, CJTR, Regina Community Radio, tuned into the community. And we're back on 91.3 CJTR, Regina Community Radio, talking about foreign films. We'll be back talking about that in a minute, but first we'll play a little game, lovingly called The Game. It's game time, y'all! Wow! (laughs) I know, it's unbelievable. In case you don't know, or if you're just tuning in, 
The game is where I spend all week trying to find a film related to our topic that these two have not seen. I tell them the title. They tell them what they think. They tell me what they think it's about. I tell them what it's really about, and we all have just the best time. Are you mm-hmm. two ready to play the game? I'm so ready. I am stretched. I'm ready to go. Warmed up. <laughs> Getting that imagination station running. Okay. Um, today's title is Never on Sunday. That title again, oh. Never on Sunday. Oh. Never on Sunday. Well, it really makes me think, what are some things that you never do on Sunday? I think historically you don't work on Sunday unless you're a pastor or a priest. So, And is that work or is it a labor of love? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, Catholic priests are married to the Christ groom or something? Christ bride? Yeah. I, I can't remember how that works. Christ bride? <laughs> Corpse bride? Yeah, I like this. Never on Sunday is definitely a movie about an errant father who just wants one day to himself, but comic impediments such as his children and that nagging wife won't let him. And there might even be some comical sequences where he keeps popping a beer, but he can't actually drink it because kooky misadventures keep happening that require his fatherly presence. And that's definitely never on Sunday. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Um, do you have a guess as to the country of origin? Just for fun. Oh, well, what's the most fatherly country? You know, I think <laughs> the country with the most fathers is definitely your favorite and mine, Romania. So it's definitely a Romanian comedy, I think. Okay, okay. Thank you, James. Uh, Sean. Oh dear. Okay, so yeah, I I also believe that it is about um I think it's about a mother and she is very she's got a high energy family. She's busy, 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 busy. And then she uh she works 24/7. They always need her. And then she gets her in her head the idea for a year that she's just like never on Sunday. And for that, on Sunday, she she does things for her. She puts cucumber on her eye. She reads her book in a hammock. And things go, go amok every Sunday. Ugh. People are homework gone undone. People not being driven anywhere. And she will just, like, steadfastly keep her feet up and watch her family fall apart every Sunday. And they, uh, it causes a lot of tension in the family. But she will not budge from this. And it creates shockwaves throughout her town. Wow. She's just trying to eat, pray, love, or live, laugh, love, or <laughs> yeah. some combination. She's like, I'll eat, pray, love one day a week. <laughs> exactly. And uh, do you have a guess as to country of origin, Sean? Um, I'd say Ireland. Okay. Uh, well, I'm so sorry to report that you are both wrong in all ways, shapes, and forms. Um, in fact, never on Sunday is a Greek romantic comedy from 1960 by director Jules Desain, who doesn't sound Greek, but did I look up whether he is or not? No, I did not. Um, (laughs) So here is the description. Free spirit and sex worker Ilya, played by uh, Greek megastar Melina Mercury, lives in a Greek port city, 
Open and amiable, she makes friends often and easily. She encounters Homer Thrace, uh, played by the director, a vacationing American who's obsessed with Greek, uh, with ancient Greek culture. Homer feels that modern Greece is a shadow of its former self, and he believes that Ilya is a prime example of contemporary decadence. He makes it his goal to amend Ilya's easygoing ways, but she has stronger principles than Homer expected. Um, It honestly sounds great and looks great from the quick little preview that I watched. Um, I think I will probably watch this at some point. Um, But yeah, that is Never on Sunday. So thank you both for playing the game. Well, I feel Thank robbed. <laughs> and rightfully so. That's fair. You'll yeah. get him one of these days, Jimmy. I will see. Um, I just had like three more thoughts. Actually, just one more mm-hmm. thought. And it's really a question about uh, the film we we're just talking about, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors from Ukraine. Yes, please. I wanted to ask both of you again. what you thought of their funeral ceremonies, particularly this tradition or habit of all the women addressing the dead and basically saying, what are you doing? Why did you do this? Yeah. Um, That was interesting. Yeah. As, as a person of Ukrainian descent, whose family, you know, has certain like narratives about Ukrainian traits it did definitely evoke for me stories of older family members through the ages uh, behaving certain ways at funerals, like throwing themselves on coffins and, you know, wailing and uh, things like that. So I, I did have a moment where I was like, oh, maybe it's a straight up cultural tradition going way back. <laughs> and that's where that comes from. Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting. And it kind of spoke to that, like, Blur, blurred line between the the physical and the spiritual in this film. Yeah. And also, I was like, people are not afraid to make fun of him, talk talk smack about him to his face. So I thought this was just sort of a, a further degradation <laughs> that they exposed him to. Not even in death can people just speak nicely about you. You gotta get yeah, an earful exactly. as you're sitting in the coffin or... Waiting to be buried or what have you. Yep. I think that's I think that's how it goes. <laughs> Great. I, I, I every time that came up, uh I just loved it. So I, I really wanted to ask. You <laughs> what too. are you doing? Why'd yeah. you do that? Well the way and, it was um, so rhythmic too. I was like, this isn't just a one off, like this is a thing. Yeah. And I feel like you have to keep the tradition up, Sonia. So next uh yep. next death, you know, keep this in mind. Yeah. Oh god. I will do. <laughs> um okay. Now let's move on to the third film, very similar in artistry. <laughs> yeah. Uh is 2012's uh offering from the Philippines, Sister Rakas. Um I chose this because it is one of the highest grossing Filipino films of all time. And so I was like, well, this should be very interesting for us to get eyes on. And it was crazy. <laughs> it was. <laughs> um, so basically it is about, um, so, okay. <laughs> so it starts off with quite the bang. Basically um, a boy and a girl are like half brother and sister, but they don't know it because her dad cheated with 
his wife with the maid and had um, a son. Um, and so then they're really good friends. The maid is still living with him. And then the wife finds out, throws her, his mom down the stairs. She breaks her leg or back or something. And he swears revenge. And they leave and then the mom f- out in the rain. They don't even yes. call yes. her a cab or an ambulance. They tell no, every they other l- servant, if you go out to help them, you will be fired. <laughs> and they're like, okay. And so then they leave her injured with a son lying in the rain. And he swears revenge to get revenge on her. Um, cut into the future. I don't know, 20-ish years. And now the boy runs a very successful fashion line, Ponytail, and uh, now goes by Bernice and hires the the sister. Uh, she has like a struggling sort of business herself and she applies to be an executive director at Ponytail. He hires her for the um, sole reason of uh, torturing her, basically. Very Devil Wears Prada, Ugly Betty vibes Mm -hmm. Um, to get revenge on her for how the way her mother treated or what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And some of the, you know what? Yeah. Like some of the tortures include ironing clothes outside. One of the wilder ones is when um, (laughs) I know what you're going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Is it milk? Yeah. Is it milk? milk? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bernice demands glass after glass of milk. And it really felt like I was missing but something. But for some reason, the torture is more on Bernice because <laughs> Bernice yeah. is chugging the milk and the torture is just making her run back and forth to get more milk. And it's like, but how is Bernice possibly chugging all this milk? Yeah. And then there's a really kind of gross moment where she decides to try and squeeze out her own breast milk because she's <laughs> out of milk. Just like, why don't I try? Despite the fact that I, her, her youngest child is probably at least 10 years old. Yeah. I, I can't, I feel like I can't stress enough how crazy this movie is. Like, it was, it felt like it is 90% improv. Did you guys feel like that? I don't know about improv, but it really reminded me of those Freeberg seltzer comedies, like Disaster Movie or mm. oh, yeah. all of those parody movies where... It is just those kind of blunt force, like quick hit jokes and tossing references in there wherever you can. Like there's that whole extended bit with the commercial references that yeah, North American audiences have no hope <laughs> of getting. And there's even a climactic moment, which I had to look it up, but there's a Filipino superhero that uh, Bernice was imitating in that big climactic moment that we're supposed oh, to kind of catch on like, to. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so there are just a ton of references like that that are getting thrown at you in that kind of just hit them with the name and with the reference and, and kind of move on from there. It, it's so funny too, because it to me it felt very like a home movie. Like... <laughs> Like somebody like grabbed grabbed the grab the camera and said, "Let's go." Yeah. Well, it's not like technically finessed. You know, it's a 2012 movie. I'm not sure if it was done on film or if it was done on digital, but it has a lot of those very gaudy wipes and yeah. crossfades and stuff like that. It also is the just sound the soundtrack. <laughs> 
is like clowns and sound effects just like just like a constant stream of sound effects just like beep boop honk honk wag wag ding a ding go yeah like someone runs and it's like yeah very that yeah and they love to speed up the camera and sometimes it's for a comedic effect because somebody's doing something fast and sometimes it feels like the scene's running too long let's just amp up the speed a tiny bit and keep moving along (laughs) yeah i was like instead of making an edit you just decide to speed it, like, instead of starting with her walking in the door, you just do a quickly sped up version of her walking up to the door. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, uh, and I know it's a quibble, but the fashions of Ponytail, <laughs> Ponytail's fashions <laughs> were really, really bad. Yeah, like, they had a couple different fashion shows. And I was really fighting to see if I could pick who was winning the fashion show whenever it came up. And whenever Ponytail's fashions came up, it's a lot of, there's a necklace with like 12 rings on it or very large cravats and stuff like that. And I'm a guy with gray shorts and a gray shirt on right now, so I have no (laughs) bearing to, to speak here. Well, you're also wearing all those necklaces and cravats. You didn't mention that. Well, that goes without saying. That's just fashion. (laughs) But it, I, yeah, ponytails was just, it was a lot of just different colored t shirts with a bunch of sort of crap stuck to it. Yeah. Maybe Philippines is really into t shirt fashion because their Mm. rival, and I can't remember the name of the rival business, but the rival business owner was named uh, Roselle, was talking at one point about a seamless t shirt being a big deal. And I'd yes. never been bothered by a seam in a t-shirt, I'll tell you. Well, then when she said it, I was like, maybe she's right. Oh, <laughs> maybe she's not tube. something. <laughs> just a smooth tube that I slide into. Um, um, I, I loved uh, the axing of Roselle. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, just as a quick aside, the, the performance that Chris Aquino gives as Roselle is... One for the books, I would say. Like, just, yeah. she's, she's the villain this film needs. And then turns out to kind of not be a villain in the end. Spoiler alert. She's like, wait, I don't want to be that. <laughs> and it's really funny. She has such a short villain turn, where for a lot of yeah. the movie, it's like, oh, is she going to be a monster boss? Oh, she's not quite a monster boss. And then there's maybe five minutes where she's a villain towards Daddy, and then she changes her mind, and then she's back on side. Yeah. Pretty much. And there is a lot to say about mm. the main Deddy's character apparently has a long chin. <laughs> they lead us to they lead us to tell they let us know that she has a long chin. And then there's a scene where every Bernice is looking around the room and sees a bunch of people with long chins. And all she can think she about gets so triggered. is is Daddy's. She's triggered by Daddy's chin. Well, when they're showing, and I the, just thought sorry. the casting for that would be so rude. <laughs> they're just like, okay, get all the long chins in here. Well, when they're doing the younger versions of them too, they make the young version of Daddy wear the prosthetic chin, and because yeah. of the quality <laughs> of the filmmaking, you can see the clear makeup spirit gum line around where that prosthetic chin went on too. I will say I never looked at somebody's chin and thought, oh, that's a long chin. I thought big right? chin. I thought, you know, square chin or jaw. I don't know if I've ever thought long chin. 
it really made me look at chins in a different way. <laughs> I was like, people are out here looking at chins. Yeah. It is just so interesting when you when something calls your attention to a like culturally specific beauty standard. And you're like, oh, it had never occurred to me that that's something people care about. But we really yeah. are just conditioned to think about these things. So, Well, like go. when uh, Roselle gives a blood transfusion to Bernice. And tells Bernice mm. that uh, he will be whiter because uh, Bernice yeah. has uh, Roselle's blood in him now. Yeah. Just a little yeah. quick quick nod to the deep colorism that is a huge problem <laughs> in Asia. Um, yeah. But I would like to talk about Bernice and Bernice's character. Um, because I think... This movie is so complicated from a yeah. queer <laughs> yeah, and yeah. gender standpoint. Um, so my reading is that Bernice is a trans woman. I think several times throughout the film, she makes very clear that she wants people to use female pronoun or, uh, like she, her pronouns for her, um, and that, and be referred to as Madam and Bernice. Um, which her mom refuses to do. Yeah. Well, not just her mom. Like, honestly, the whole film kind of uses it as this really complicated way of, like getting back at Bernice at times or kind of like putting her, I feel like she often gets like kind of put in her place by being misgendered yeah. in this really They're complicated like, did you forget? Way. Yeah. And I want to be conscious of not like, like we're watching this from our own specific cultural context. Right. So I think it's really easy to write it off and say like, this is completely transphobic. This is, you know, like unacceptable, but I think it's important to kind of recognize that, I think gender is understood in a very different way in the Philippines where yeah. it is a lot less kind of binary. And I think even the few, the fluid use of like referring to Bernice as him isn't necessarily an intention to misgender all the time. But I think what makes it so complicated is that at times it is. And so for me, it was really challenging to parse like, what of this is just a more expansive understanding of gender and what of this is like really complicated and kind of upsetting power dynamics. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. How did you guys feel about that? Well, I think the trickiest part in there is pulling out where the Philippines were at that point in time when it came to their trajectory with thinking about gender and, and non-gender conforming people. Like the actor, uh, Vice Ganda, uh, I think officially uh, considers uh, himself non-binary, but yeah. also still uses he, him pronouns a, a lot from what I can kind of see. Um, and from what else I can kind of read, like one of the big things about Vice Ganda is that in Philippine cinema prior to this and in comedies, there's been, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, uh non-gender conforming or trans characters as kind of side supporting characters. And one of the big things about Vice Ganda from my limited reading and understanding is that uh, he's one of the first or one of the biggest at, at a certain point to kind of step forward as a main character who was mm -hmm. kind of in that gender space. And so with that, you know, there's already, you know, some kind of ground being pushed and everything like that. But what you're saying is, also true in that as a you know viewer coming from 
my own experience in 2023, when you see a waiter at not only refusing to stop calling the character like a, a man or a boy, which is clearly upsetting them, but also admonishing them for, for dressing as a woman. And Vice Ganda yeah. kind of looks fab. Vice Ganda is the best dressed throughout the movie, I feel. Oh, yeah. I can disagree. It's it's upsetting, and it's tough to kind of get back into the uh, comedic tone of the movie after that point, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That's, that scene was really played, like, for laughs. And it was like, in any other film, this is a sort of an emotional climax, I would feel. Yeah. And Bernice is just like, oh, get out of here. <laughs> but yeah. also, like, Vice, Vice Ganda is a very popular uh, performer in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Like, is a girl, like, host, is, like, every film they act in is, like, one of, is, like, so high-selling. I think some of, a star in, like, the top eight, like, best-selling films in the Philippines. So, it's, it is, like, really wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's a very vocal advocate for queer rights. Um and so, yeah, I think, yeah, that kind of, like, softens some of it for me, I guess, in its broader context, that it's not just like, oh, this is one transphobic movie. It's like, this is one complicated movie in a much bigger picture where ultimately the person in this role is, like, doing good things in the real world that, for me, make that a little easier to swallow. I don't know. And Bernice uses, uh, Bernice's character refers to themselves as multisexual in a way that I've never heard that <laughs> phrase before. Yeah, that part did make She's me She's like, don't worry, I'm multisexual. <laughs> well, Bernice can't help themselves when they get that model in the um, measuring situation, Mer- whatever you call that. Merlin. Which, is, which again, I was like, okay, so now we're doing the queer predator stereotype. It's so Well, it's the so both tricky. of them, I was like, sorry, you two are the CEO and executive director of Ponytail. And you are slobbering over this gentleman. It was very tough. Not to be rude to Deddy, but was anyone else a little surprised at Marlon the model's instant attraction to much older, very silly, (laughs) kind of like... Crazy dressing lady. (laughs) Well, she could change attires, so, you know, there's nothing more attractive to a man than a a lady who can change his tire for him. Yeah. Yeah. Merlin. Mer- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little voice that she did. <laughs> Bear she, every choice she made was kooky lukey. But a lot like, of for them some did reason, make me laugh a lot. <laughs> when she did her job interview and she just decided to like yell her answers. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> she was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and also there was a quote that I also wrote down because I was like, I, I can't believe this. It, a doctor, Bernice is suffering some sort of, is like having a medical emergency. And the doctor, they're like, help, help her. And the doctor says, I ate too many beans. My arthritis has, t- has, uh, has kicked in and I cannot do CPR because my hands are stiff. And everyone just takes that as a normal thing to say. Yeah. And I was like, this is a Mad Lib. What does this mean? <laughs> yeah, I also was like, is this something, again, with like there's some cultural belief, like some 
a different view of medicine, or is this also just nothing? <laughs> just a doctors? doctor that is kooky. Ugh. Yeah, so that was quite, it was quite an adventure with this one. Yeah. Uh, what did you guys think of um, the theme, the theme the- tune? Go, Sister Rackus, go. I was <laughs> very here for it. There also is a um, uh, a very sort of pushed in love story between Bernice's uh, adopted nephew or mate or deceased maid's son. I forget the relationship really. I think that's right. And Daddy's oh, yeah. daughter, which now I guess now they're not related because of the maid thing, but. Yep. Just they so. also were just trying to set up a little. Well, Bernice wants him to break her heart just as an extra torture. <laughs> but he's not good the at kids it. Into it. Yeah. yeah, he's really not. No. I don't know. It's just natural. You know, a couple of teen cuties doing their thing together. I know. Those two were literally made in like a teen, teen idol like workshop. There's a Philippine like, boot this, camp this is what for you guys teen like. cuties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could see that, honestly. Yeah. Um, anything else to say about Sister Rakas? <laughs> um, okay, was... well, just... Oh, I'll just be... It's really quick. Just with Daddy's fashion, I found her, her glow-up. I'll put that in quotes. When she went mm-hmm. to go work for Rissell. Very mm. interesting. Because it was the same wacky level of fashion, but heightened. And the film did kind of managed to convince me that she that it was better like that she looked great and at one point she was wearing this very neon yellow outfit and i was like mm. I, I think it's working now i like this you were on board it's with like the scene in devil yeah it's in the devil wears prada when anne hathaway they're like are you wearing the and she's like the neon yellow uh, scrunchie and entire headpiece, yes. <laughs> exactly. That's what Daddy was saying. Yeah. When was Devil Wears Prada released? That's 20, 2011. I'm just figuring if it's before or after Sister Rockus. Like, are we getting it wrong? Oh, uh, I think it's before. It must be before. It has to be like 20, yeah. 2007, 2008. Okay. Yeah. I think. I bet. Yeah, I think so too. My one Not observation. that we're accusing anyone of anything. No, no, no. no. Ever, <laughs> this no. Is, this if anything, did, it's, certainly did not plagiarize Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> no. If anything, it's just parallel thought. You know, the yeah. Devil Wears Prada plot is like an Ur plot that recurs in every culture, you know. <laughs> yeah. The Devil Wears Ponytail. <laughs> Ponytail is such a funny name for <laughs> the really company. Also. It really is. <laughs> Well, they're going to get the Italian investors that way with that business, you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming with us on another uh, spin around the world with, uh, with foreign film. Uh, we'd like to thank Saskatoon's The Garys for letting us use their song Manituna for our theme song. We'd like to thank everyone here at CJTR and all of you at home for letting us your ears. We're broadcast Wednesdays at 6, Fridays at 3, and are available as a podcast on Spotify, Apple Play, and everywhere else podcasts are uh, played. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so give us a follow and have a good night. Bye. Bye. Bye.